0: Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com.
1: Veterans who want to start businesses often turn to the Small Business Administration for loans. The SBA is obligated to give them special consideration, but the Government Accountability Office finds SBA doesn't really have the procedures in place to deal with veterans. More now from the GAO's Managing Director for Financial Markets, Daniel Garcia-Diaz. Dan, good to have you back.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: What is the law here? This is a statutory requirement for SBA in terms of how it deals with requests from veterans. What is that? Let's start there.
2: Yeah, so the statute is very general, but it does require SBA to ensure that lenders are giving special consideration for veteran status. And what does that mean? That means a variety of things. And the regulations that SBA has implemented have focused on ensuring that lenders are responding to applications in a prompt manner. It also says in close questions where the lender may be kind of considering on the edge of approving or not approving to give it a closer look and generally kind of try to work with the borrower to, to make a decision in favor of the borrower. But, of course, we looked at those regulations and any policies and procedures that SBA has in place, and we found that, well, they were as vague as what I just described. And so we were concerned on how the lenders are going to operationalize those requirements.
1: And just how does this work? These are private sector lenders that have sanction from the SBA or they have some kind of a dispensation, or are these loan programs among the SBA's many loan channels?
2: Yes. So there are multiple programs. In this report, we looked at three different types of small business programs. And SBA relies on lenders and sometimes community development corporations as well to provide loans to the small businesses. And they are the ones, these private entities, are the ones that are doing the underwriting of these loans. And they have to follow strict procedures that SBA lays out for them. And in return, SBA can provide a guarantee on part of that loan.
1: Got it. And this is a program that is is long-standing. What prompted GAO to look at it at this point in history? Because these go back decades, right?
2: They do. And there was congressional interest in ensuring that veterans have access to capital, and particularly capital that's coming from these federal resources. That's why we looked into the matter. And we continue to hear these concerns over time that veterans sometimes may be struggling a little bit more compared to non-veteran businesses in obtaining capital. And there's a range of reasons why the veterans can uh, experience some difficulties.
1: And just briefly, what are those as an aside?
2: Sure. And so some of the difficulties that veterans may find is that the lenders are looking for work experience, right? And so the veterans have to explain, hey, military service is work experience, valuable work experience that could be applicable to starting up or expanding your small business. Other challenges that they'll find is that a lot of the rules and some of the benefits that accrue to veterans aren't transparent. They always don't know about it, so they may not even ask for it. And of course, veterans are going to experience many of the same challenges that other businesses face, for instance, high interest rates and things like that. But those are some of the issues that veterans run into. Some of the studies we've looked at also kind of point to veterans experiencing slightly higher rates of rejection of loan applications. But what we also find is that veterans tend to eventually get the credit that they need but it that suggests that they often have to shop for willing lenders.
1: We're speaking with Daniel Garcia Diaz, Managing Director for Financial Markets and Community Investment at the Government Accountability Office. And so you're recommending that SBA sort of quantify or tighten up the language surrounding special consideration. That seems like a tough thing to do without ordering people to automatically approve every veteran application. What could SBA do, do you think?
2: Part of it is providing examples and details of how might a, say, close case look like and what are some options for making successfully accepting the application. But, of course, you have to balance that with sound underwriting practices. As you say, you don't want to just approve anyone who's a veteran. You want to have a sound loan. But providing more details on the types of cases defining concepts of, you know if you're going to review applications promptly, what exactly does that mean? And it is difficult, but working with lenders and the experiences that they have, they can come up with more details to ensure that all the lenders that are participating in these SBA programs have kind of a common starting point to evaluate these applications and take action. Right now, it's not so clear. And in fact, in some of our conversations with lenders, lenders will often tell us, hey, we review veteran-owned business applications just like we do everyone else. Well, that would suggest that you're not aware of the special considerations. So providing a lot more details in their policies and procedures for the lenders, I think, would help significantly.
1: Now, one of your recommendations is, and I'll just read it, the administrator of SBA should ensure that the associate administrator of the Office of Veterans Business Development develop and implement policies and procedures for ensuring full compliance with quarterly year-end reporting requirements. So it sounds like there's some procedural things and the ability to get knowledge of the extent of loan programs for veterans might be lacking in the first place.
2: Correct. And that recommendation focuses on SBA-supported outreach centers that are all over the U.S. Right now, there's about 28 of them, and they provide training and information to veterans on how to start up a business, how to grow your business. And these centers, and they can be nonprofits, they can be universities, they apply for a grant, they receive a grant from SBA to administer the outreach. They're supposed to set goals for themselves and report on whether they're achieving it to SBA. And what we found in 17 out of 21 cases that we looked at, that they weren't reporting their objectives, their targets, and whether they're meeting them. And so SBA really has to tighten their monitoring of these centers to ensure that they are delivering the counseling, the technical assistance, the training that they're being asked to do.
1: And if the SBA does develop more precise language and use cases and so forth for the lending institutions to make solid the idea of preference for veterans or special consideration, I should say, then what is the obligation of lending institutions to accept those and and adopt them?
2: Well, the lenders will, when they administer these programs, they are looking to SBA's policies and procedures because it's important for them to meet the rules of the program so that SBA will honor the guarantee if there should be a default. And so they are motivated to follow whatever instructions they get from SBA. And to the extent that SBA can provide a lot more clarity on what they mean by special considerations, that's going to help the lenders follow through on it. But of course, you have to supplement that with monitoring and oversight just in general over the lenders, which is also part of a bigger and broader issue at SBA.
1: Right. Does SBA have the institutional capacity to do this level of scrutiny on a pretty big program? given everything else that's on the SBA's plate.
2: Correct. And as we showed in the report, veteran-owned businesses receiving SBA assistance can account for anywhere between 2.1% and 5% of the loans made under these programs. It's an important population to keep an eye on, and of course, Congress flagged it for SBA, but it is one population among many that SBA has to be keeping tabs on.
1: And what was SBA's reaction to this latest report?
2: They generally agreed with all the recommendations, but interestingly, they also cited regarding the special considerations language that they really didn't think it was necessary, that they provide a lot of flexibilities, you know, for lenders to implement those special consideration. But as we pointed out, and as we heard from the lenders, there's not a lot of clarity around this and how to operationalize it when you're underwriting a loan.
1: Daniel Garcia-Diaz is Managing Director for Financial Markets and Community Investment at the GAO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before.
3: Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission.
0: Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. it's um, It's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs?
3: Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work we're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways.
0: This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership?
3: There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. you have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for thirty two years, and I'm a mother of twins